TUC Radio, Time of Useful Consciousness. Daniel Ellsberg's Pentagon Papers, TUC Radio Archives, Two of Two. His encouragement to others to disclose government lies and his response to the accusation of treason. This is the second part of a talk by Daniel Ellsberg that he gave on December 18, 2007 in downtown San Francisco. The audience was a small group of members of the Republican Roundtable. Those were the George W. Bush years, and it was well known that Ellsberg campaigned against the threats of war on Iran. I had permission to film the event and was concerned about a possible confrontation. Halfway through this 29-minute segment, Ellsberg responds to a statement that he was advocating treason, to which he gives a legally and historically brilliant response that still applies today to Julian Assange and Chelsea Manning and Edward Snowden and all whistleblowers. But in the end, he received a good round of applause. Here's Daniel Ellsberg. In 1969, I gave the Pentagon Papers, which was a 7,000-page study of U.S. decision-making in Vietnam from 45 to 68. It ended in March of 68. And uh, it had a big impact on me. I finished reading it in the summer of 69. I began to copy it to give to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee in the fall of 69. And uh, they didn't put it out they, they, for various reasons, but mainly that they would be accused of breaking secrecy. Not a legal problem for them, but the uh, Defense Department, Fulbright thought, would use that as an excuse to take away foreign military aid authorization from Foreign Relations Committee and give it to the Armed Services Committee. So he would lose some of his jurisdiction. So Fulbright stayed away from it. Eventually, I gave it to the New York Times. Supreme Court said they could print the papers, but I was put on trial facing uh, 12 felony counts, eventually, a possible 115-year sentence, which I expected to get, not the full 115 years. I didn't expect to live that long, or even with, with, it, with good behavior, I would have been getting out in 35 years, which is next year, uh, actually. So some would question whether I would have had good behavior, but who knows. As that came out, and I was under indictment. I met Senator Morse for the first time. I dealt with Fulbright, but not with Morse, who had lost his senatorial position in large part because of his opposition to the war, as did Gruning. So uh, the two people who voted against Tonkin Gulf. Morse said to me, having now read the documents in the New York Times, which I had had in my safe in 64, he said, if you'd given those to me, at the time, and he was on the Foreign Relations Committee, Tonkin Gulf Resolution, the undated declaration of war, would never have gotten out of committee. And if they brought it to the floor, bypassing the committee, it would never have been passed. So that seemed like a heavy burden for me to have to carry on my shoulders if I'd done it seven years before I got it out in the press. Now, if I'd done it, say, three or four years before I did, who knows, it's a complicated calculation to try to figure out what the effect might have been. But the war would have been on 
And one thing I know is from experience, it wouldn't have stopped the war. And it didn't stop the war in 71 either. The war went on for four years. But in 64, he was saying that would have made a difference. My first reaction to that was I didn't accept the full weight of that because I thought, all right, he would have passed up August 7th as the time for the Tonkin Gulf Resolution, but another thing would have come along. Uh, these, these events, as McGeorge Bundy put it, are like streetcars. You get another one if you miss one. And he would have used another excuse. He would have lied us into the war later anyway. It took me several years before I was chewing that one over and realized that if I'd given the Congress and the press not just what I had on August 7th, but what I had in September or October, meaning a safe full of documents of planning for the expansion of the war right after the election, that would have stopped the expansion. In a country that did not want to widen the war to discover that all the planning has gone ahead, he had a Congress that did not want to widen the war, and led by Democrats who obeyed the president in public, but privately were telling him all to a man, don't do this. If they had evidence that he was ignoring that and was going ahead anyway, he would have been in deep trouble. I don't think he could have expanded the war, and I'll give just one reason, because it was crazy to do it. The Iraq invasion, had it been fully explained beforehand, not what we know now, but what people inside believed then, which was right. The foresight was quite adequate to stop that war. Iraq was crazy, and the Vietnam escalation was crazy. And people didn't appreciate that as much as it was at the time because they didn't know the inside stuff. They didn't know how much internal criticism and skepticism there was because that was lied about and concealed, and I didn't tell them. But such a thought did not occur to me. It's about time that it occurs to more people because really 40 years have passed and the same bull is going on as we speak. Democratic Senator Durbin says he voted against the authorization back in 2002. He voted against it because he had read the intelligence estimates and had been briefed and understood what the public did not know, <coughs> that the evidence for WMDs was not what they were saying. It was extremely equivocal, extremely ambiguous, and of course, turned out to be wrong. But at the time, very thin, very controversial, contrary to what the president was saying. He said, so I voted against the authorization. But he said, I couldn't tell my fellow senators and I couldn't tell the public because it was secret. Other people wrote memoirs like Richard Clark, uh, who was a Bush man, also a Clinton man, and before that, uh, Father Bush man in charge of counterterrorism, definitely bipartisan expert here. He writes a memoir in early 2004 bringing out that as chief of counterterrorism in the White House, he understood on September 11th and 12th that it was Rumsfeld's determination to attack Iraq. 2001. Now that's September 12, 2001, the attack takes place March 17, 2003, 18 months later. He doesn't tell us that. 
until the book comes out in 2004, a year into the war, a little late. He now tells us, and it, I'm glad he did, it was interesting, history, that when Rumsfeld said he wanted to attack Iraq, he says, but Iraq had nothing to do with this. Uh, this is Osama bin Laden, because he'd been warning about this for months and months and months, most of the year. So he didn't have to do a research on that point. He said, this is what I've been warning you about. This is Osama bin Laden. Rumsfeld says in the memoir, but there are no good targets in Afghanistan. I just saw that quote again by, uh, came out from Wolfowitz, same quote uh, last week. So I'm going to attack Iraq. He says to the president, attacking Iraq is like attacking Mexico after Pearl Harbor. But it's a lot worse than that because Mexico is not the center of a billion and a half Muslims who feel themselves under attack and who are involved in suicide attacks. As Clark said, this would destroy his counterterrorism program. It would recruit so many people for Osama bin Laden's banner that you would never be able to catch up with them. You could do your best to hold them down, but you could not really reduce them. His program was being destroyed. As intelligence later, after he got out, says, that's what's happened, pretty much. He tells us this in 2004. Well, if he'd come out in 2001 and said this, or 2002, they would have said, as they did say when his memoir came out, oh, he's making that stuff up. Cheney said, oh, uh, Clark, he was out of the loop. He was the loop. He ran the loop. Still, that's the kind of thing they would have said. If he had given a drawer full of documents, carefully removing agent names, sources and methods, in communications intelligence that we didn't want to put out, and just his own memos, the planning here that showed this will be a disaster and what the president is saying is totally wrong, I think there's a good chance we would not be where we are in Iraq. Um, Saddam would still be there, probably, doing his murderous bit, and he would still have a tyranny under Saddam. Those who think that we in this country are more secure uh, as a result of our invasion of Iraq will not criticize Clark, let's say, for helping the president uh, pursue that policy. I have been saying for a couple of years now, since 2002, well, oh, geez, five years, but in particular since 2004, with something we call the Truth Telling Project. Uh, you can see the background on that on my website, ellsberg.net. What we call the Truth Telling Project were a dozen people who had had high clearances, CIA, higher than top secret general, CIA, FBI, NSA people who had retired now joined me in saying, uh, we regret, those of us who believe we could have put out information earlier that might have saved many American lives and other lives, we regret that we did not do that. And I personally made the point to whatever audience might indirectly reach ears in the Pentagon or the White House or CIA, don't do what I did. Don't wait till the bombs are falling. Do not wait till the war has started and another thousands of people have died. 
If you know that the country is being manipulated with or without an undated declaration of war, but being lied to and manipulated into a disastrous aggressive war, then accept the personal risks that are involved, and they're large, of telling the truth. Consider it. Consider it. I can't tell anybody what they should do in terms of giving up their own future in the government or hurting their children's education or suffering the other costs that whistleblowers generally do suffer. I didn't. Uh, most marriages do not survive this, actually. Patricia and I have been married for 37 years. Very, very few marriages that went through a long war trial, anti-war trial, actually survived. Right there, you have a very heavy cost. And let's um, say I didn't. They didn't put me in prison because the president's crimes against me to keep me quiet during the trial about what I might know about his plans, this is Nixon, were discovered during the trial because of Watergate and charges were dropped because of government misconduct, and they were a major factor in Nixon's um, impeachment proceedings, which led to his resignation. So that did have an effect, and I didn't, in the end, pay that big a price. I did, there were certain prices, but uh, nothing like what they had in mind. <laughs> People called me a martyr. I said, no, 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 I'm, I'm no martyr. They had martyred him in mind for me, but uh, they didn't succeed. Uh, so the price is high, but you, there's a war's worth of lives at stake. I'll close with this thought. People ask me, aren't I unhappy to see us slide into a war in Iraq after Vietnam? And I say, you know, 35 years later, two generations, a whole new set of people, it's not so surprising that people have to learn this for themselves. But I am dismayed and, you know, puzzled and uh, anguished that five years after we're lied into Iraq, we could be on the process of being lied into an attack on Iran. Again, which by all accounts, and I know expert, but you don't have to be an expert, would be a disaster. That was Daniel Ellsberg at the Republican Roundtable in San Francisco in December 2007. Living history until today, 16 years later. And here is the first challenge in the question and answer part of the event. I think that there are some points that you've made as facts that are disputable. However, what really troubles me is it seems to me that you're advocating treason on the part of our people in our government. And uh, I believe that if we go down that road, that the result can be far more devastating than what you're presenting. I respect the seriousness with which you raise that. You're not saying that lightly. Of course, you're making a very serious charge. You know that. It's not the first time that I'm advocating treason because I'm advocating that people do what I did sooner than I did it. Not an individual. When I'm asked that question, I sense that I'm not, or I hope I'm not, talking to a lawyer or a constitutional lawyer. Is that fair? Are you? I'm a dentist. OK. <laughs> well, I'm no, I'm no lawyer. I'm a defendant. Uh, I'm a defendant. But I have had a, a, an expensive education in the law, and, some, and I wish I'd had it earlier. Um, for instance, let me guess that the people who, who raise that question, the word treason, which is distinct from saying a bad idea you know, or a bad policy or bad approach, 
And there's much to be said for and against what I'm talking about here. I'm, I'm well aware of that. After all, I acted differently in good faith for a dozen years myself. But treason is an important word. We hear it a lot now. I think very few of them are aware that our Constitution has a definition for that felony of treason. It's the only felony defined in the Constitution. And the reason it's in the Constitution is so that it cannot be broadened without a constitutional amendment process. They adopted a very narrow definition of treason, which is aiding and abetting you know, an enemy of the United States with intent to help a foreign power, is the way it comes up in the law, when it's spelled out in the law, to, with intent to help a foreign power or, to, or hurt the United States security. Very narrow uh, notion, mainly during wartime. Very few people have been accused of treason, a handful. And the reason for that was that our country was founded by traitors. Every single one of them, a loyal subject of King George III in 1774 or two, and every one of them liable to be hanged as a traitor for signing the Declaration of Independence or fighting in the war. Remember what Patrick Henry's line and the, the approach to the war, he's called a traitor. If this be treason, make the most of it. But they signed it up in the, in the Constitution to try to reduce the number of times you'd be called traitor. As a matter of fact, Patrick Henry had a very interesting quote much later when they were uh, going through the Bill of Rights. He was arguing for trial by jury as a uh, basic principle. And he said the reason for that, a jury of your peers, which on the whole meant your neighbors, a local jury. And he said, I am not so old that I may not again be called traitor. And when that happens, I want to be judged by a jury and not by a president, is what he was saying. So I, I do, you know, when, when that word is used loosely, which is not the way you were using it, I, I take considerable offense at it. I do think, though, that uh, it's important for Americans to, to understand what I finally believe I came to understand which is, in this country, it can't be treason, and it isn't even illegal to tell the truth to Congress or to a court or to your countrymen, even if your boss doesn't want it, even if you can be fired for it, even if you can lose your clearance. But actually, we don't have an official secrets act in this country for most forms of secrets. There is an official secrets act for communications intelligence or for the names of intelligence covert operators that came up in the Valerie Plain case. That's why they were able to bring newsmen in. We don't have an official secrets act, and the reason for that is the belief that you can't have a democracy if the president has the final word and the only word as to what the public shall be told and what they shall know in that. And I think that's a wonderful principle which almost no Americans know, and I wish they did. If we get an official secrets act, which we may well, under not only this president, but another president, uh, people won't even know that there's been a change. The change will be that every time you read in the paper, in the Times or the Chronicle or whatever, we have this document, which we're paraphrasing, is classified, or the people who told us this were not identifying because it's classified. Have you, have you seen that phrase? Because it's secret? Every time you read that, the Attorney General, Democrat or Republican, will also read it. 
And all they need to do is to call in the journalist, if there's an official secrets act, which we don't have, and say, hey, a crime has been committed. You've admitted it. That's your byline. Who committed the crime? Who told you this anonymously? Who gave you that document? And uh, if you refuse to give it, if the, if the journalist refuses to give it, go to jail like Judith Miller. And uh, some will last 90 days, as she did, and most won't. Some will last longer. You won't have any more leaks. Now, for good or bad, uh, I don't think we have enough leaks about lies and wrongful things like this. We would not know about the NSA surveillance, clearly illegal. We would not know about the torture. We would not know about the CIA destruction of tapes, which is clear-cut crime. I just read there, Jonathan Turley, a professor at Georgetown, wrote the other day, said there's clear six laws they can prosecute under this one. They told Congress, the CIA told Congress, we have no interrogation tapes or transcripts when they did, and they knew it. Lying to Congress, they lied to some federal officials, lying to public is not a crime, but lying to Congress in this testimony, they lied to courts who demanded those things. They lied. A, a judge today uh, turned down the attorney, Mukasey's demand that he, this judge, Kennedy, stay out of this problem. He said, no, I'm not going to stay out of it. I made this order, and it's been disobeyed, and I have to have an investigation here. So he lied to court. Uh, obstruction of evidence, obstruction of justice, obstruction of Congress, and torture, all of them illegal. And clearly, according to Turley, there's clearly we've identified at least 12 people who are subject to those charges right now, and almost certainly many more. So uh, hundreds of people have known about that criminality for years. The, the transcriptions were made in 2002. They were destroyed in 2005, two years ago. That's been known by a lot of people. The, who is investigating it now? The Inspector General of CIA. But as Turley points out, wait a minute, the Inspector General has admitted that he knew of that destruction two years ago. He is a subject of a prosecution. He's not the one who should be investigating this. So we come back to the point, can you have a democracy with effective total secrecy, especially sanctioned by criminal penalties, which we don't have yet. But we have other penalties, firing, clearance, and so on. Can you have that if that secrecy is effective enough that you're never going to find out if the president does commit crimes? And we're not talking Republicans here. Let me say the president I worked for committed most of the same crimes as Bush. But he wasn't found out until after he got out. And if he had been found out, I wouldn't count that the Democratic Congress would have held him to account. But he was just as impeachable, for sure. That got us Vietnam. And the secrecy now, which is far more effective than we need it to be if we want to be a democracy, got us Iraq. And it may get us Iran. Now, you can say, well, you need discipline and maybe the benefits outweigh the costs. Well, that deserves looking into. My experience says no. Yeah, it's a rhetorical question. You're sworn to uphold and protect the Constitution. Your loyalty is to the Constitution. You know, why would, you know, disobeying your boss be treason? May I say, from my point of view, you know, with all respect, I would say it 
clearly isn't treason, although it will be called treason and not only by Ann Coulter. Uh, you know, I, I looked up my name in Ann Coulter, uh, the book on treason, and I thought, well, it should be at least a chapter. But no, there's just a, a brief mention, Daniel Ellsberg, the felon, the felon Daniel Ellsberg. Now, I thought in this country, you were a felon if you'd been convicted of a felony, which I haven't been. I don't know, is Ann Coulter a lawyer or not? Yeah. No? Okay, well, all right. She needs a little lesson. But, uh, so let's put aside the treason. The question is, I think the larger question is, are you violating your oath? You know, aren't you violating your oath uh, if you keep that secret on the Constitution? Well, of course, it depends what the secret is. But if the secret is that Congress is being lied to in the question of war and peace, or if they're keeping secrets about clear-cut crimes like warrantless wiretapping uh, or torture. You know, a case can be made for torture. Cheney believes in it. Lots of people, actually lots of people believe in it. But it is illegal. Uh, if you change the law, you could still question whether you should be doing it or whether it was disastrous or whether it was immoral, but you wouldn't be subject to prosecution. Why was this obstruction of justice carried out because they were afraid of prosecution, because it was clearly illegal. When you keep silent to Congress in courts, in this case courts, about a clearly illegal process, you've become an accessory. I think I used the word accomplice later. Accessory is the legal term. And uh, moreover, you are violating your oath if you've taken an oath to the Constitution. I mean, most of you here at this moment are not subject to an oath to the Constitution. Personally, I believe in acting as if I were still subject to it, because I've come to believe that much in the Constitution. But when I was in the government, it didn't occur to me that there could be a conflict. Uh, I couldn't conceive of a higher form of patriotism than doing what the President wanted, whether it was Republican Eisenhower or Johnson. Uh, and I couldn't conceive of it being right to tell the president's secrets until 1969. I mean, you know, that was 12 years after I was into this process when I suddenly realized that my keeping the president's secrets was killing an awful lot of Americans. And, and I didn't think of the Constitution then. I really didn't know much about it. I worked for the president. It didn't apply to me. When, when, uh, Nixon said, when the president does it, it's not illegal. And when Bush clearly says things amounting to that over and over and over again. Um, he's talking about a different form of government, unless we confirm it. And that's what Congress has been doing. Democrats and I, Democrats and Republicans, I certainly am bipartisan in my feeling about uh, the leadership of both parties right now. I think we need different leadership in both parties, if I may say. Thank you very much. That was Daniel Ellsberg, with applause from the Republican Roundtable in San Francisco on December 18, 2007. Thanks to Peter Buxton for organizing the meeting and for allowing me to film it. This rebroadcast is part of a celebration of the work and life of Daniel Ellsberg. He recently disclosed that he has pancreatic cancer 
and has only three to six months to live. He has remained active and productive and wrote that his editor knows that he works better under a deadline. And Ellsberg adds in the letter, quote, It turns out that I also live better under a deadline. As of April 18, there are already over 1,300 entries for Daniel Ellsberg Week on search engines. Join in with your memories and appreciation and affection for Daniel Ellsberg. You can hear this program again for free on TUC Radio's website, tucradio.org. My name is Maria Gelarden. Thank you for listening. <laughs>